elementary school age. Uh, one in particular sticks with me, though, from third grade. Our teacher, our third grade teacher told us to get a pencil out of our desks for our next activity. These were the kind of desks, you know, that, that have that open sort of built-in uh, drawer, right? We each had our own desk every day. It was always ours. We were responsible to keep it organized, uh, have all of our school supplies in there, and ready to go. So our teacher said, get out a pencil or something like that, you know, for our next activity. So we all did that, all of us except for a friend of mine who sat right in front of me. His desk was really messy. He was rummaging uh, through his desk. You know, he had like his, his arm in there. He had his head down. He was, he was reaching in. There was stuff falling out of his desk. For the life of him, he could not find a pencil. I'm sure some one of us could have just offered him one, but before long, the teacher noticed and came right over. She took one look in his extremely messy desk, and she had been on him about this before, so she literally lost it. She erupted. She yelled at him at the top of her lungs. She turned over his desk and dumped it all out on the floor, and all of his stuff went everywhere. Now, that was my reaction, too, sitting behind him. That was obviously an overreaction that was inappropriate on all sorts of levels. You know, some days she was a great teacher. We really did. We had good moments of learning in the class, but we never knew what mood she would be in when we walked in. So we were always on edge. We were waiting to see, is she going to lose her temper again today? Come to think of it, I have a few counseling bills I could probably send her way. I'm sure my friend does too. But we come to a passage this morning we often don't know what to do with. It makes us a little uncomfortable at times, maybe even puts us on edge. Jesus seems angry here. He does strange things that seem a little bit out of character. You know, he turns over the tables in the temple, and then for good measure, he kills a fig tree. It's not exactly on the greatest hits list among all of Jesus's works. Chances are, you know, if you have a life verse, it's probably not from this passage. Just going to take a guess. If it is, see me afterwards. I have a counselor that I can recommend to you. But this passage makes us uncomfortable because it doesn't seem to fit the gentle and lowly Jesus that we expect. But we'll see, of course, Jesus had very good reason for doing these things. Matthew had very good reason for including them in his gospel, as I hope we'll see together this morning. As we continue our series in the gospel of Matthew, we've been seeing throughout the weeks as we've walked through this gospel, we've seen growing opposition to Jesus as he's continued to reveal, to unveil who he is, his identity and his mission. And now he's been set to go to Jerusalem, where he keeps telling his disciples strangely that he must suffer and die and rise again. Well, that, of course, doesn't fit their paradigm of who Messiah would be, what Messiah would do. So they're all confused. Well, now we fast forward just a little bit. We're going to pass the triumphal entry, uh, which we looked at back on Palm Sunday, if you were with us then. But So now Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he comes to the temple in this passage we just heard read, and he disrupts everything. And if this scene makes us a little bit uncomfortable, that's okay, because that's part of the point. Because unlike my third grade teacher, Jesus has the right to step in here and turn things upside down. We'll see that this is actually an act of grace in and of itself, because he wants to grow us so we can bear fruit. So let's pray together as we turn to this passage of Scripture. Father, as always, we come before you in total dependence.
trusting your spirit to move among us as we read your word together, as we consider these acts of Jesus and also what they mean for us today. And so give us wisdom, give us insight, grow us more into the likeness of Jesus. For his glory, we pray in his name. Amen. So uh, take a look at Matthew 21 if you have a Bible uh, in front of you. You'll notice the chapter at the beginning of Matthew 21. This chapter begins with the triumphal entry that I just mentioned. Jesus entering Jerusalem in fulfillment of prophecy as king, right? Well, this scene ends in verse 11, and then just look at the few, uh, the first few words of verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple, right? There's no break, uh, in the text. Matthew doesn't mention how long, uh, how much time transpired between this triumphal entry and the amount of time he goes to the temple. Matthew seems to want to connect these incidents. So we see a thematic connection. See, Jesus alone has the messianic right, but nobody else does, but Jesus has the right to enter the temple and to change things. He's putting into action what he said back in Matthew 12. He said, one greater than the temple is here. The prophet Malachi writes in chapter 3, the Lord whom ye seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now John's gospel shows us, if you're familiar with the gospel of John, John shows Jesus cleansing the temple at the beginning of his public ministry rather than the end. That's not a contradiction because Jesus did it twice. He bookends his public ministry, the beginning and the end of his public ministry, by coming to the temple and doing this, making a huge statement of his messianic authority. But sadly, now returning the second time, nothing has changed. It's exactly how it was the first time he entered. Look at verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. This is an in-your-face kind of moment for sure, isn't it? You can picture the silence maybe after the, the chaos has settled down just a little bit. All eyes are on Jesus. He's making this big scene, overturning tables, driving people out, so sacrificial animals you can imagine are running loose. Uh, it's chaos. But this shouldn't have been quite as surprising to the people as it probably was. Zechariah 14 tells us of a day when there would no longer be trading or traders in the house of the Lord. There was growing expectation in this time that Messiah would come and purify the temple, not only from pagan uh, outside influence, but even the corrupt worship of God's own people. So they should have been expecting this to some degree. Well, where Jesus enters, where Jesus is overturning the tables, this isn't inside the temple proper, but this is in the court of the Gentiles, part of the greater temple complex, where there was a market for buying and selling sacrificial animals, exchanging currency. This wasn't in itself a bad thing. This was actually a very necessary part uh, of the sacrificial system, especially for those traveling really long distances. Uh, They could just buy the, the appropriate animal for sacrifice when they arrived. Well, some believe these traders were taking advantage of people. Some of the, the money changers were taking a big cut when they were uh, changing the currency. That, I'm sure, was happening. There's good evidence to suggest that. But that doesn't seem to be Jesus' focus here. Because look again at verse 12. He drove out all 
all who sold and bought in the temple. Everybody who sold, even those who came to buy sacrifices here. Why is this so important? Because Jesus isn't saying the temple needs a little renovation, needs a little spring cleaning. No, he's saying this place needs a complete overhaul. Don't forget the sacrificial system was prescribed by God himself, but the religious leaders had let it get to a place where it was more business than a place of meeting God. Without right hearts, the sacrificial system had developed into something that was no longer pleasing or acceptable to God. Instead of a house of prayer, the, a place to give, to offer to God, they made it a den of robbers, a place to take for themselves. So it seems at first like a strange and angry outburst from Jesus that even contradicts what we think is his usual behavior. We see, too, this is an act of grace. This is an act of mercy. To make all things new, Jesus has to purify. Jesus has to step in, purify the old, and remove what's corrupt. Well, that is not only true in the temple, but it's true in our lives as well. This process of purification, of growing more into Christ's likeness is often painful when God steps in and he overturns our expectations. He overturns our comfort. He drives us deeper into places of repentance. He drives us deeper into places of dependence. And just like the Jews of Jesus' day, we can be guilty of substituting our religious activities for a walk with God. Now, this is a really subtle shift. Sometimes we don't even know we're doing it. Because we tell ourselves we're doing the right things, don't we? Before long, we start going to church for what we can get. Maybe it's an emotional experience we're after, rather than first offering ourselves in worship to God as living sacrifices. We're prone to gather Bible knowledge, right? Rather than applying it to our lives. We're prone to make our giving even become a transaction that maybe makes us feel better about ourselves rather than sacrificially giving as an expression of gratitude. See, it always comes back to the heart, doesn't it? So when we have a religion that is primarily or only outward, we deceive the people around us, but we can even deceive ourselves. Where are you this morning? Are you hiding behind your Christian ritual? Or does your ritual flow out of a heart that longs to know Christ? Look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So I guess Jesus wasn't just having a bad day after all, was he? He cast out, yes, he cast out those who were corrupting the worship of God. But look at the contrast. He freely welcomes the blind and the lame. Isn't this incredible? Of all days, he could have said, you know what, guys, come back tomorrow. Can't you see I'm busy cleansing the temple? I'm fulfilling my messianic duty here. Give me a minute. But this, too, was part of his purifying work, welcoming these, showing compassion on those who needed healing. But it's more than that. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 5, King David, if you know your Old Testament, he's trying to take the city of Jerusalem. The enemy taunts him, saying, you can't take our city because our blind and our lame could hold you off. Well, of course, David does take the city. He makes it his capital. 
And he makes a decree because of their taunt that no blind or lame would be allowed in the temple. He didn't want to be reminded of the enemy's taunts. And so about a millennium later, the son of David comes to the temple again. He not only welcomes the lame and the blind, but he heals them. What a picture. The message is clear. There's a new sheriff in town. Messiah is bringing his kingdom. We've entered a new era. God's promise of blessing all people through Jesus is happening. What strikes me about these people that come to Jesus versus those Jesus drove out of the temple is they were in need and they knew it. They weren't fooling themselves. They had no religious authority to be proud of. They had nothing to offer. Those buying and selling, most of them probably didn't think they needed Jesus, did they? They had things under control, which is so ironic because isn't the whole point of the sacrificial system to come before God to recognize your desperate need of forgiveness? Your desperate lack of self-sufficiency. But the blind and the lame, they did the right thing, didn't they? They came to Jesus, which is the prerequisite for any, all of us, who need forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Not religious duty, not religious devotion, but coming to Jesus. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, that's what God is calling you to do. Come to Jesus. Jesus brought judgment that day on those who were perverting the worship, perverting the way to God. He cast them out, but what does he do for those in need? He welcomes them, he heals them. In John 6, Jesus promises that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And so it doesn't matter what sins are in our past or even what sins are in our future. When we come to Jesus, we can hold on to the promise that he will never cast us out. What's the response to this messianic statement? Verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is nothing new, this incredible spiritual blindness of the religious leaders, those who should have known better. They're shown up by the kids, aren't they, running around, those who have the spiritual sight to see who Jesus is. These kids probably running around repeating the hosannas that they heard their parents shouting the day before. Such truth coming out of their mouths and such blindness by the religious leaders. But let's look at the second episode here because, again, it's all connected. Matthew wants us to see it all in the big picture. Look at verse 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Wow. So if the first story makes us a little bit uncomfortable, you know, at least though his reason was clear. Surely this time, though, he just woke up on the wrong side of the bed, right? I mean, it's a poor, innocent fig tree. Just think, no fig newtons would ever come from this fig tree. Might be a good or bad thing, depending on how you feel about fig newtons. 
Matthew says Jesus was hungry. Maybe he was just hangry. Maybe that's a better translation of the Greek word here. I don't know. But again, there's more going on here if we look a little closer. As usual, Jesus doesn't do things on a whim. The prophets compared Israel to a fig tree. We heard it in the call to worship, Micah 7. Sometimes they would compare Israel to a fruitful fig tree, but sadly, more often, as we heard in Micah 7, to an unfruitful fig tree. So this scene is symbolic. This scene is connected to what we just saw before, what happened the day before in the temple. When Jesus comes to the temple expecting fruit, he finds none. He finds the tree bare, the fig tree. And so this tree symbolically withers, much like this generation of Israel would wither because of their rejection of Messiah. And in just a few short decades, their temple would be destroyed. This tree pictures for us a religion that might look good on the outside, but lacks the vital life that produces fruit. Hold that thought for just a minute as we look at verse 20 and following. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Well, this seems a bit jarring. I don't know if it does to you, but it does to me. This Seems like a curveball question from the disciples. After all they'd seen, you'd think the question would be, Jesus, why did you do that? Not, how did you do that, Jesus? Nevertheless, Jesus uses the occasion to teach them about faith. To teach them about prayer. We assume Jesus here means having a ton of faith is necessary because we don't see mountains move too often. We don't see fig trees withering all the time, miraculously. So he must mean having a ton of faith, right? Well, no. We've already seen in Matthew chapter 17, he's already told us we can move mountains with just a tiny bit of faith. So again, it's not how much faith we have, but where it's placed. That's the point. This teaching has been misused so much by the prosperity preachers. As if God will just give us whatever we want if we name it and claim it, if we have enough faith. Again, that misses the whole point. Commentator R.T. France writes that faith in the Gospel of Matthew is always, in Matthew, not a quality of the one praying, but a relationship of practical trust with the one to whom prayer is offered. And that's vital for us to grasp, which brings us back to the idea of fruit. When we have this vital relationship of trust with God through Jesus and the power of the Spirit— Part of the fruit of that is this access to God that we have, where God does the impossible. It's not up to our faith. It's God who has the power. It's God who can do the impossible when we pray. So, of course, somebody without this vital connection to God lacks this fruit. They lack this benefit. Those that Jesus drove out of the temple lacked this faith. They lacked the right heart, this relationship of trust with God. And so the image of this withered fig tree is startling. It's sobering. Frankly, it's terrifying if we let it sink in. It's terrifying for those who choose to reject the gift of salvation in Christ. 
But in the positive sense, it drives home for us the need for our life of faith to bear fruit, both corporately as God's people, as a church together, and individually as we walk with God. In John 15, Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. There's that pruning. There's that cleansing work that's often uncomfortable, but a necessary part, his work of grace, so we might bear fruit. Jesus goes on in John 15, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do just a little bit. Oh, wait a minute. No. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Lest we think this bearing fruit stuff is up to us, something we have to muster in our own strength, right? Just try harder. Man, I just need to try harder to be a better Christian. That's all I need to do. Just try harder to please God. Just try harder to obey. That puts us right back to where we started. Putting leaves on a tree with no fruit. See, Jesus says we only have this fruit. We only have This vital connection to him if we're abiding, just as a a branch is vitally connected to a vine. We get no spiritual nourishment. We get no strength apart from him, and we certainly don't get fruit. Where are you this morning? Maybe you're in a season of struggle, of discouragement. Maybe you're feeling like you're in a spiritual rut lately. Maybe you've been trying to do something apart from Christ. This is where again and again and again we have to come back to our desperate need for his provision. We need Jesus in us to grow our longing for him. We need Jesus in us to draw our hearts to God in prayer. We need Jesus in us to enable us to serve others, to share his love, to bear fruit. The life from the vine into us as the branches so we can bear fruit. Again, the fruit is not up to us up to him. But our focus should be on abiding, on remaining in Christ, remaining vitally connected to him. How is the Spirit speaking to you from this passage? Have you been hiding behind ritual? Have you been satisfied with just checking the boxes of religion? Let's consider how God might be calling us to abide in Christ more closely, to cling to him. Are you spending time with him in his word and in prayer? Are you practicing spiritual disciplines to cooperate with that pruning work that God is doing in you? Are you vitally connected in community? Maybe there's an area of your life that's getting in the way of this vital relationship of trust with God. Could be a blatant sin, something you're hiding from others, could be a good thing that you've turned into an idol. Jesus has the right, just like he did in the temple, he has the right to step into your life and to turn those tables upside down. Jesus has the right to cut and to prune so we bear more fruit. Now, we can have one of two postures to this, right? We can fight him, we can resist, 
or we can submit to his authority and we can receive his life. And so let's come to Jesus with the posture and the humility of the blind and the lame that came to Jesus for healing, knowing that he will never cast us out. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father, we thank you for Jesus who reconciled us to you and we had no power to come to you on our own. Help us to abide in his life-giving presence. Father, we want to experience more of the life of Christ as a church, as us as individuals, that we might be used to share his life with those around us. May our worship be pleasing in your sight. Make us more and more a people that clings to Jesus and so bears fruit for his kingdom. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.